Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Corva Coleman. A pause in fighting between Israel and Hamas is stretching into a fifth day today, including the release of hostages and Palestinian prisoners and detainees held by Israel. Yesterday, Hamas released several foreign dual nationals. As NPR's Eleanor Beardsley reports, France's president welcomed the news. President Emmanuel Macron hailed the release of three French minors, citing the names of the two 12-year-olds and a 16-year-old in a tweet. Hostages' family members in Paris expressed their joy in interviews broadcast on French television. There were also two German and six Argentinian dual nationals among the hostages. In return, Israel let go 33 Palestinian women and minors from Israeli jails. Tuesday's extension provides for the release of 20 more hostages from Gaza in exchange for 60 Palestinian prisoners. Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu has made it clear he intends to continue the Gaza offensive after the ceasefire expires. Eleanor Beardsley, NPR News, Tel Aviv. Congress is back at work and Democrats are seeking further aid to Ukraine. Many Republicans won't support that without additional U.S. border security funding. Senate Republican leader Mitch McConnell. Senate Republicans have been laser focused on actually fixing our broken asylum process, not just pouring more money into a system that's simply not working. And our Democratic colleagues would do well to take these efforts seriously. Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer points out that aid for Ukraine is backed by both parties. The worst thing we can do right now, the worst thing we can do, is to make something as bipartisan as Ukraine aid conditional on partisan issues that have little chance of becoming law. Some senators are working on a bipartisan bill, but some Republicans in the House say they'll block Ukraine aid without additional U.S. border funding. A suspect is being held without bail in the shooting of three college students of Palestinian descent in Burlington, Vermont, last weekend. Vermont Public's Brittany Patterson reports federal and local authorities are investigating the incident as a possible hate crime. 48-year-old Jason Eaton has pleaded not guilty to three counts of attempted murder. Police say they're still investigating. The families of the victims say they fear the incident was motivated by hate. Two of the students were wearing Palestinian scarves at the time, and they were speaking a mixture of English and Arabic. Both local and federal officials say the investigation continues. Burlington's mayor called the shooting one of the most shocking and disturbing events the city of about 45,000 has experienced. For NPR News, I'm Brittany Patterson in Burlington, Vermont. Today is the second day of memorial observations for former First Lady Rosalind Carter. President Biden and First Lady Jill Biden will attend a service for Mrs. Carter later today in Georgia. This is NPR. I'm Rupa Shanoi. This is WBUR in Boston. Massachusetts gaming officials are worried about underage sports betting. The Gaming Commission says it heard reports of people under 21 using sports betting apps. In a hearing yesterday, betting operators DraftKings and Penn Sports said they suspended some accounts because of underage betting. The companies say they're taking steps to improve verification. Gateway Park is one of the few large green spaces in Everett that's accessible to the public. Now the community wants to make it more resilient to climate change. WBUR's Palomora explains how that could make it more welcoming to people and native wildlife. The company that built Gateway Mall also constructed the park as part of its development plan and later added walking paths and bike lanes. But the community wants more. 
Tom Philbin is a conservation agent for the city of Everett. He says the city received a federal grant to restore a creek that runs through the area, take invasive species out, and plant native tree species. You'll see more insects, more butterflies, more bird life there, and we will provide a boardwalk eventually. The city also plans to restore the wetlands near the creek, which will require special evaluation because the site is contaminated. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Paula Moda. Boston leaders are trying to get more people into its electricity program. The city says that residents who enroll in the Community Choice Electricity Program will save about $340 a year over the basic supply rate from Eversource. Mariama White-Hammond is the city's chief of environment, energy, and open space. She wants all residents to know they can join the program. Our neighborhoods of Mattapan and Hyde Park and Dorchester and increasingly Alston Brighton and East Boston. I really want to encourage people, look at your bills and make sure that you're getting the right rate. She says the city plan is also a greener option because it buys more renewable energy than standard utility plants. A Medford man who crashed his car through a cement barrier at the Alewife T station will not face criminal charges. That crash happened in February. It happened on the top floor of a parking garage and sent debris and glass into the station's library. Prosecutors tell the Boston Globe they're dropping charges since the man underwent mental health counseling. It's 7.06. WBUR supporters include the Boston Foundation. Knowing it will take all of us to improve lives and strengthen communities, the Boston Foundation partners with leaders and changemakers to advance equity and power a better Boston. The Boston Foundation. Move equity. Move Boston. Learn more at tbf.org. The Bruins lost their third straight game last night. They fell to the Blue Jackets 5-2 in Columbus. The Bees return home Thursday to skate with the San Jose Sharks. Tonight at the Garden, the Celtics will play the Chicago Bulls. Partly sunny today, it'll be in the upper 30s. Clear overnight with temperatures in the 20s. Increasing clouds tomorrow and back to the upper 30s. It's 36 degrees in Boston. Thanks for listening to WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Heather Sturt Haga and Paul G. Haga, supporting African Wildlife Foundation, working to ensure the future of Africa's wildlife and wild lands. Learn more at awf.org. In times of crises, journalism plays a vital role. I'm Lisa Mullins. At WBUR and NPR, our job is to ferret out the facts and report the fullest version of the truth possible, challenge assumptions, hold officials to account, bear witness, and tell the stories of those with the most at stake. We can't do our job without your help. Make your year-end contribution at WBUR.org or call 1-800-909-9287. Thank you. Lisa Mullins there, host of WBUR's All Things Considered. She brings you what you need to know at the end of your day. I'm Rupa Shinoy, host of Morning Edition, bringing you what you need at the start of your day. From start to finish, we help you make sense of the world and your neighborhood every single day. We are the fabric of your day. And on this Giving Tuesday, we are coming back to you to ask you to do your part in making sure this service continues for you and your family and your community at the level you depend on. We are here at the start of our 
year-end fundraiser asking you, if you can, please give 10 or $15 a month at WBUR.org or call 1-800-909-9287. Any amount will be appreciated. If you can do more, we will be so grateful. Again, I'm Rupa Shanoi here with Radio Boston host Tiziana Deering. Good morning, Rupa. You know, on Giving Tuesday, uh, it's a particular privilege to ask you to make today the day. Um, We heard from Margaret Lowe about 20 minutes ago, our CEO, and one of the things she talked about was how sacred the trust is that our listeners put in us, how much we value and respect it. It builds connection. Mm -hmm. Uh, And we have members of our Murrow Society who have said, let's connect on Giving Tuesday in our shared belief in WBUR, uh, how important it is and what it brings to the community. So those members of the Murrow Society say, listen, do it now on Giving Tuesday, Let's step outside of ourselves. Let's support WBUR. We'll give you a 50% match on your gift. Just go to 1-800-909-9287 or WBUR.org, and your $10 a month monthly gift becomes $15. Your $20 a month becomes $30. We'll join you in our shared trust, our shared connection in WBUR on this Giving Tuesday because it's a lifeline. This is Anne-Marie Sievertson, co-host of the WBUR podcast, Endless Thread. For thousands of people across greater Boston and beyond, WBUR is a lifeline, a reliable, trusted source of news, facts, analysis, and truth. When you support WBUR, you strengthen and extend that lifeline. You protect WBUR as a resource for a whole community of listeners who rely on us. Becoming a supporter of WBUR means that every story, every interview, every second of breaking news, and every moment of joy you hear, you made that possible. You gave that to everyone who turns to WBUR to help them understand our region, our nation, and our world. So please, go to WBUR.org and make a contribution to WBUR for yourself and for your community, for someone who might not be able to give. You are our lifeline. Thank you. In other words, our journalism is only as strong as your support. Think about how much we add to your life every day. All the times maybe you hear a story on WBUR that you mention to a friend or a colleague later in the day, and it sparks a conversation and a connection that you wouldn't have had without us here. We need your support to keep this service coming to you at the level you expect, at the level you need. So act now when your contribution will be matched 50%. If you're already a sustainer, please think about giving more if you can. If you don't give, recognize that you are benefiting from the generosity of others. And this is a crucial time to step up. And it's worth mentioning that when you give now, you will be entered into a sweepstakes to go anywhere in the world. Um, I'm just going to mention that. I'm just going to drop that here. We'll tell you more about it later. But that, that is the case. That is the case. So please give 10 or $15 a month at WBUR.org or call 1-800-909-9287. And on this Giving Tuesday, other listeners, members of our Murrow Society have said, hey, join us. Let's do this together. We'll put 50% more power behind your gift. The average gift, $16 a month, becomes $24. $50 becomes $75. 1-800-909-9287 on this Giving Tuesday. WBUR.org. And thanks. 
We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Goddard House in Brookline, an innovative senior community for those seeking meaning, growth, and purpose in each and every day. GoddardHouse.org. And the Harvard Art Museums, with over 50 galleries of art spanning the centuries. Free admission every day, open Tuesday through Sunday. HarvardArtMuseums.org. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Michelle Martin in Washington, D.C. And I'm Martinez in Los Angeles, California. President Biden says Israel and Hamas have extended their ceasefire in Gaza by another two days, paving the way for more exchanges of hostages and prisoners. Since the ceasefire began, at least 50 Israelis taken by Hamas on October 7th have been returned to Israel. 19 foreign hostages, mostly from Thailand, have also been released. And 150 Palestinian prisoners have been released by Israel and allowed to return to their homes. Now, Israelis and Palestinians are waiting to see how much longer the ceasefire will last and how many more hostages and prisoners will go home. Joining us now with more is NPR's Daniel Estrin in Tel Aviv. Daniel, the ceasefire has been extended by another two days. How many more people might be freed? Well, Israel's offer is for every 10 Israelis released, Israel will release 30 Palestinians and extend the ceasefire another day. So over the next two days, we're expecting 20 Israelis and 60 Palestinians to be freed. And we're going to have to see if more foreign nationals like Thai guest workers are released as well in separate deals. Any chance that this ceasefire could be extended even longer past just today and tomorrow? There is a chance. I mean, Israel has capped this ceasefire at 10 days max, and we are on day five. But if Hamas does keep offering up more hostages to be released, we'll have to see if Israel does consider extending the ceasefire. Israel says it's willing to release uh, one very prominent Palestinian detainee, Ahed Tamimi. She is an icon for Palestinian defiance against Israel, as Palestinians see her. A few years ago, she was a teen. She was imprisoned for slapping Israeli soldiers. And a few weeks ago, she was detained by Israel on suspicion of incitement and support of terror, uh, according to Israel, apparently for hate speech on social media, which her family denies. So uh, we are also hearing in Israel a lot of worry about this whole process. You know, the longer the war is delayed to release hostages and to exchange them for prisoners in Israel, will it be hard to resume Israel's military assault against Hamas to try to eradicate Hamas in Gaza? It's an incredibly emotional time for Israelis seeing this whole process. For example, yesterday, mothers and children were released, but their fathers are still being held in Gaza, and there's no prospect yet for releasing them. And there's also a lot of anger boiling over in Israel over multiple media reports alleging that Israeli leaders ignored intelligence warnings about the Hamas attack on October 7th. Yeah, Israel has said from the beginning, Daniel, that uh, they are committed to crushing Hamas and ending its rule in Gaza. So thinking about a ceasefire, it kind of doesn't square that a ceasefire could continue if they plan to stick to that. Um, All right, but each day the ceasefire is extended means one more day without war, and that's got to be a huge relief to the Gazans who have suffered immense losses for seven weeks straight. Daniel, what are you hearing from them? Well, people in Gaza are telling us that, you know, they're seeing hundreds of aid trucks coming into Gaza now for the United Nations to distribute, but they personally are not feeling the impact yet in their own lives. Our producer there, Anas Baba, has observed long lines of people trying to fill up cooking gas. There's not enough to go around and really to supply people's basic needs, uh, food, 
bread, water. Nearly 80% of the population in Gaza is displaced from their homes, according to the UN, and they're saying that diseases are spreading in shelters. So the Biden administration is calling on Israel to allow increased humanitarian aid to Gaza. Secretary of State Antony Blinken is coming to the region to push that and also to bring up the elephant in the room. What's going to be the future of Gaza the day after the war? NPR's Daniel Estrin in Tel Aviv. Daniel, thank you. You're welcome. The extension of the ceasefire was announced after Hamas released dozens of hostages that they took from Israel on October 7th. In return, Israel has agreed to free 150 Palestinians from Israeli prisons. So why is the temporary ceasefire structured this way and what does each side hope to gain? Shibli Talami is here to discuss that. He's the Anwar Sadat Professor for Peace and Development at the University of Maryland. Professor, how did negotiators arrive at this particular ratio? One hostage held by Hamas for every three prisoners held by Israel? Well, obviously, um, the, the ratios, the exact ratio is not known why they arrived at this particular ratio, but it is clear that the Hamas was asking for a lot more. Obviously, Israel holds thousands of Palestinian prisoners. It is said now that Israel is holding about 7,000 Palestinian prisoners, including about 3,000 held without, char- without charges. So it's a, a huge number of uh, prisoners. So clearly, Hamas originally asked for release exchange of all the hostages for all the prisoners, uh, which would have uh, meant the ratio would be much larger. In the past, in past exchanges, the ratio was much larger. For one Israeli uh, soldier, there were hundreds of uh, um, um, Palestinian prisoners. Uh, Remember that it's very easy for Israel uh, to arrest um, uh, Palestinians. Uh, they are under occupation. Israel has a military. It can go into any town or village and arrest any number of people at any given time. In fact, they've arrested uh, about 3,000 since October, uh, the October attack. Mm-hmm. Um, so the ratio is not uh, particularly surprising. In fact, it's relatively low in comparison it, to the previous Does it dehumanize? Ratios. Does it dehumanize Palestinians' this ratio as if their lives aren't as valuable? I don't think in the exchange uh, ratio it dehumanizes. I think where it comes in more in the casualty ratio, uh, because obviously the Palestinians would like to have as many prisoners released, and as I said, it's much easier for Israel to arrest, but the casualty ratio is where it comes in. For example, in the West Bank and Gaza, even before the attack, the typical ratio has been about uh, for every, for every Israeli killed, about seven or eight uh, Palestinians are killed. And in the current war since October 7, uh, for every Israeli killed, more than 10 Palestinians uh, are killed. So the ratio has been more like 10 to 1. And that, I think, is one that is seen to be much more dehumanizing. Okay. Now, the remaining hostages held by Hamas include uh, grown men and soldiers. Uh, do you think that changes the calculus on both sides in determining who gets uh, released? Um, I think up to a point, yes, because I think the military, when, when it comes to soldiers, uh, the, the ratio may, may become different. And at the moment, obviously, for Hamas, it's, uh, uh, holding on to women and children is a problematic issue, uh, obviously, uh, aside from the humanitarian disaster that that entails. Uh, it is also a public relations issue. Uh, so obviously, they're more anxious to get that out of the way. And also in the exchange for that, they're highlighting the fact that Israel is holding a lot of children. Obviously, Israel's 
has, has held thousands of children over the years, many without charges. And they like to highlight that a lot of people didn't know that Israel was holding children. And I think in a way they benefit from that. But as you get into the military, uh, that, that becomes a, a bit of a different game. How much do you think Hamas cares about public relations in, in this case? Oh, they, they care. Um, they care obviously a lot. And, and, and it, it's clear, for example, in terms of how they wanted to show that they treated the prisoners well and so forth. They care. But at the core of the prisoner issue, though, don't underestimate how genuine this issue is. This issue particularly, obviously it's important for Israelis. We know they want their people back. Everybody wants their loved ones back. They were, they were taken in a horrific attack on October 7th. But for Palestinians, there's three reasons why this issue so resonates with people um, it, because it goes to the core of occupation. The scale of it, first of all, probably up to a million people have been arrested by Israel over the course of the occupation. This is a population of five million between the West Bank and Gaza. Second, it also underscores the injustice of the two-tiered system where the settlers in the West Bank uh, face civil courts and they're rarely ever uh, prosecuted. But uh, on the Palestinian side, it, it's military courts uh, with almost 100% conviction. And third, it shows that how violent the occupation is even when the gun is not fired, because you can have a military unit go into a house at two o'clock in the morning and arrest people on incitement just for speech and hold them without charges indefinitely. Shibli Tilhami is the Anwar Sadat Professor for Peace and Development at the University of Maryland. Professor, thanks. My pleasure. Ceremonies honoring the life of former First Lady Rosalind Carter continue today in Atlanta with a tribute service that will be attended by President Joe Biden and other dignitaries. There are also plans for former President Jimmy Carter to attend. Raul Bali with member station WABE reports the public got to pay their respects last night at the Carter Presidential Center in Atlanta. Rosalind Carter's large brown casket sat in the lobby of the Jimmy Carter Presidential Library and Museum. It was covered in flowers and guarded by two Georgia State troopers in honor guard uniforms. Ashley Baker came from an Atlanta suburb to pay her respects. She says her first memory of the Carters was from the early 80s. I was a five-year-old, four-year-old. I was in preschool and they were leaving the White House and my teacher, she was crying so profusely, just very upset and emotional. And I was like, what is she crying for? And so that's kind of how I became um, enamored with the Carters. I just love what they stand for as people, not just the presidency, but just their love for people, their work with Habitat of Humanity, how they are so involved with their church. There were other reasons people came to pay their respects. Kimberly Stanley appreciated the Carters as a couple committed to each other and their causes. I was thinking as we went through how much a part of his life she is. And um, it feels like uh, not just the death of Rosalind Carter, but you know the death of decency and humanity and um, everything they stood for. You know, at a time like this, it really makes you reflect. Rosen Carter's work is remembered as part of the Presidential Library and Museum where Meredith Evans has been the director for eight years. I feel good because I know Mrs. Carter's resting and I think she wouldn't want us to be sad. I think she would want us to honor her with joy. Evans believes Carter's legacy will be her advocacy for mental health and caregivers. She says employees who've known her for decades have been somber about her passing. But I think at the end of the day, what a rich, full life, 96, if we could all reach that um, pinnacle. And I think it's also the sad part maybe that the love story is over. Um, watching them together is just absolutely amazing. 
Jimmy and Rosalind Carter were married for 77 years. For NPR News, I'm Raul Bally in Atlanta. This is NPR News. WBUR supporters include German International School, Boston. Visit their traditional German holiday market and open house on December 9th. Learn more at GISBOS.org and Solar Gardens, offering solar subscriptions that allow households to access the benefits of solar power through off-site solar fields. Learn more at SolarGardensMA.com. Today is Giving Tuesday, a day to strengthen organizations that have a positive impact in your community. I'm Lisa Mullins. When you support WBUR, you strengthen journalism that plays a vital role in our democracy. Give by midnight tonight to get in on our Giving Tuesday match. Some members of our Morrow Society gave their money to make your support worth 50% more to us. Give at WBUR.org. We're kicking off our year-end fundraiser here on WBUR's Morning Edition. Can and we just keep that music groove going underneath that whole thing? <laughs> or you thing? can just keep dancing. I'm I was enjoying to. that. I'm just going to keep the groove going. All right. You go uh, ahead, Rupa. Okay, thanks. Over Thank here. you. Thank you. I'll keep going. <laughs> Sorry. All right. As you heard Lisa Mullen say, it is Giving Tuesday, the day designated after all the consumerism of Black Friday and Cyber Monday for you to take a moment, maybe take a breath to support the organizations that are meaningful in your life and that you depend on throughout the year. I don't know if you heard this, but NPR actually had a story about Giving Tuesday yesterday. And in it, an expert said it is essentially about voting for an issue you believe in, except you're voting where you put your money. And so we're asking you to vote for WBUR. We think we deserve your vote. Vote for the high-quality journalism we bring you every morning, all throughout the day, especially at a time when facts have never been more important in upholding democracy. That's just what you heard Lisa Mullins talking about. Think about also the companionship we bring you every morning, the connection to the world around you that we make possible. All of that is only possible actually because of you. Uh, and others in your community who step up on days like this and recognize that they have a role. You have a role in making sure WBUR is here for this community. It only happens with your support. So think about what's comfortable for you to give and go to WBUR.org or call 1-800-909-9287. I'm Rupa Shinoy, Morning Edition host here with Tiziana Deering, host of Radio Boston, and also a really good dancer, it turns out. <laughs> I know it's a little early for that, but I did but like you the do groove. It. Thank gosh, you. Yeah. Thank you. You know, I love that you said give what's comfortable for you because we have this wonderful opportunity today on Giving Tuesday. You give what's comfortable for you. And other members of our Murrow Society who believe in WBUR as much as you do will give it 50% more power for us. So a $5 a month contribution from you becomes $7.50 a month. I really appreciate this tough math that you Thank do. You. I go for the easy math. You go for the tough math. It works out. The average gift, $16 a month becomes 24 Whatever you do, because they share your faith in us, they will make go 50% further on this Giving Tuesday. one 800 9099287 or wbur.org
The news cycle didn't let up in 2023. Earthquake with a magnitude of 7.8. Hit with the sweeping and historic indictment of a former president. The United Auto Workers are on a historic strike. This COVID morning. public health emergency is ending. NPR and this station will follow the news wherever it takes us next year, too. Join us and please donate to this station today. And whatever you give today will be matched 50%. That is powerful. That means your contribution goes farther. If you needed more incentive, I teased this a few minutes ago. If you're waiting to hear more, here it is. When you give now, you could win a trip anywhere in the world. Think about it. Ireland, India, Australia, New Zealand, Singapore, China, any anywhere, absolutely anywhere, Greece, Tokyo, wherever you want. Essentially, this is a $10,000 voucher that can be used for air and ground travel, hotel accommodations, excursions. It is whatever you want to do. We know you're not looking for a gift when you support WBUR. You want to be part of WBUR. You are part of WBUR's community. We know you know you have a role in keeping us going. This is our way of saying thank you. Go anywhere in the world. Get in on it. It is a sweepstakes. It is only available this week. Go to WBUR.org or call 1-800-909-9287. You know, I'm Radio Boston, but Morning Edition, all things considered, on point, here and now, bring you the world. This is just one more way to do that. When you step up now and give and take advantage of the 50% match that some members of our Murrow Society are offering, you bring that world to your neighborhood, Mm -hmm. to your community, to everyone who relies on the quality news and information, the quality journalism that WBUR brings day after day and maybe can't afford it themselves. What a way to observe Giving Tuesday. What a thing to do right now. 1-800-909-9287 or WBUR.org. It's quick on this Giving Tuesday. Take that step for us and thank you. Thank you. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Indiana University, committed to moving the world forward and working to tackle some of society's biggest challenges. Nine campuses, one purpose, creating tomorrow, today. More at iu.edu. From Procter & Gamble, maker of Align Probiotic, a daily supplement designed by gastroenterologists to help relieve occasional bloating, gas, and abdominal discomfort. More at alignprobiotics.com. From Paycom, Paycom guides employees to find and fix payroll errors before submission in the Paycom app. Information about employee-guided payroll is at paycom.com NPR. And from ECMC Foundation at ecmcfoundation.org. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Dave Mattingly. The four-day pause in fighting between Israel and Hamas has been extended to six. More hostages and prisoners are expected to be released today and tomorrow. Yesterday, Hamas freed another 11 hostages, women and children. In exchange, Israel released more Palestinians from Israeli jails. At the same time, more trucks with humanitarian aid are moving into Gaza. Youssef Hamash lives in Gaza and works with the Norwegian Refugee Council. He says that aid is badly needed. We never seen homeless people in Gaza in our lives. Now it's a, it's a really common to see people sleeping in the streets and people just looking for any place and consider it as a shelter without any means of protection. He was speaking to CNN.
The man suspected of wounding three college students in Burlington, Vermont, has pleaded not guilty to charges of attempted murder. Vermont Public's Brittany Patterson has more on the investigation. Authorities say the three college students were visiting one of the victim's relatives here in Vermont over the Thanksgiving break. Early on Saturday evening, the men were walking down a residential street, and two of them were wearing the traditional Palestinian scarf. They were speaking a mixture of English and Arabic, and authorities say they were confronted by a white man with a handgun. 48-year-old Jason Eden is being held without bail. This is NPR News. From the WBUR in Boston, I'm Rupa Shanoi. Anita Mann says two of his young cousins were among 11 hostages released by Hamas yesterday. Jason Greenberg says 16-year-old Sahar and 12-year-old Erez Calderon are back in Israel with their mother and sister. The children's father, Ofer Calderon, is still being held captive. Greenberg says two of his other relatives were killed near the Gaza border last month. Today marks the 81st anniversary of the Coconut Grove fire. 492 people died in the nightclub fire in 1942. It's the deadliest fire in the city's history. The Coconut Grove Memorial Committee broke ground last weekend on a permanent memorial at Statler Park, about one block from the club's location. Group President Paul Miller says that memorial will pay tribute to many people. Those that died the families, the survivors, the first responders, and then to celebrate all the amazing advancements in medical care, legal care, burn care, and of course the fire advancements that save millions of lives around the world every every day. The fire led to major changes in fire laws and medical treatments for burn victims. More minor flooding is expected today in Boston's Seaport neighborhood. That's because of the so-called King Tide, which is an abnormally high tide that happens several times a year. Those tides are getting even higher each year because of climate change. The sea level in Boston has gone up 10 inches in the last century, and it's expected to go up another 10 inches in the next 25 years, making these floods more commonplace. It's 734. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Kaiba, providing technology solutions to government agencies in the health and human services space. Kaiba, K-Y-Y-B-A dot com. The Bruins lost to the Blue Jackets 5-2 last night in Columbus. The Bees will return home Thursday to play the San Jose Sharks. Tonight, the Celtics will host the Chicago Bulls. Highs in the upper 30s today under partly sunny skies. Mostly clear tonight as it falls to the mid-20s. Tomorrow, highs in the upper 30s again, and it'll grow increasingly cloudy throughout the day. It's 36 degrees in Boston. You're with WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Fisher Investments. As a fiduciary, Fisher Investments is obligated to act in their client's best interest. Learn more at fisherinvestments.com. Investments in securities involve the risk of loss. From the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency, its Secure Our World program is aimed at encouraging people to turn on multi-factor authentication. CISA.gov slash secureourworld. And from the Doris Duke Foundation. 
It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Amy Martinez in Los Angeles, California. And I'm Michelle Martin in Washington, D.C. Good morning. 2023 is on track to be the world's hottest year on record, and Europe is warming almost twice as fast as the global average. Residents of Paris have a greater chance of dying in a heat wave than the residents of any other city in Europe. That's according to the medical journal The Lancet. From Paris, NPR's Eleanor Beardsley reports on how the city is trying to prepare. An exercise took place recently in Paris's 13th arrondissement. Dozens of school children were herded into a shaded, defunct rail tunnel. Little desks with crayons and paper had been set up for them. The drill was not in preparation for a bomb threat or a terrorist attack, but for heat waves. Ziad Tuat, who helped prepare the crisis drill, says heat domes, a phenomenon where sweltering heat stays in place, don't just happen in July and August. You can have a heat dome on May, on June, on September. So we have to think about the future and to be sure that any student can go to school for two or three days, even if it's in a tunnel or in in a parking an underground parking lot. Tuat says such naturally cool places are being identified across the city for vulnerable populations like children and the elderly. Human-driven climate change has increased the frequency, size, intensity, and duration of extreme heat events. Scientists say by mid-century, temperatures could reach 50 degrees Celsius or 122 degrees Fahrenheit in Europe's most densely populated city. Green Party Paris Council member Alexandre Florentin led a six-month multi-partisan task force to look at solutions. We are really not prepared for the heat waves to come. We meet in one of the city's heat danger zones near the Paris Opera House, built by architect Charles Garnier in the 1860s. The Opera Avenue, uh, right over there, has no trees. There is not a single tree. Do you know why? Because one guy called Garnier He said, well, if I'm going to build an opera there, you'll have to have a full avenue and a, a nice view. I don't want any trees. So today, the neighborhood full of upscale law firms needs maximum air conditioning, which is never a solution, says Florentin, because air conditioning always creates heat. When you live in a, a, a place that is so dense as Paris, basically you are heating your neighbors. His task force report, titled Paris at 50 Degrees and sponsored by the city, recommends more green spaces, trees, vines to cover buildings, and solutions like letting wind flow through buildings. Maybe we should destroy some buildings at some places so that the air flows better. Paris is known for its iconic 19th century houseman-era rooftops. I walk eight floors up on a service staircase with entrepreneur Eton Lévy. Wow. These are the the rooftops of Paris. We're surrounded by a sea of uh, zinc roofs and chimneys. Nevi says these romantic-looking zinc rooftops absorb heat. Their surface temperature can reach 70 degrees Celsius, 158 degrees Fahrenheit. As a result, residents on the top two floors of these historic buildings have four times the chance of dying in a heat wave. Levy is part of a new company called Roofscapes that wants to build timber platforms on top of the zinc roofs. First of all, we're trying to create a shading effect. The wood will keep solar radiation from directly reaching the zinc surfaces. 
And second of all, with this timber platform, we're very much trying to add more greenery. The majority of our platforms is going to be covered with uh, soil and plants, which will further uh, help decrease the temperatures inside the buildings. Paris Councilman Florentin says this is exactly the kind of project that's needed on a massive scale. He says society must reorder its priorities to make things happen in time. The way we have developed our societies, uh, thanks to oil, uh, thanks to an absurd amount of energy, we became lazy when it comes to design. What's needed is nothing short of a lifestyle revolution. Still, Florentin says he's hopeful. Paris is a very resilient city, it's a very rich city, it has history. People here understand that we have a responsibility toward the future as well. But what if there is no revolution, I ask? What will Paris become? A city where the rich install air conditioners. And the poor see their life expectancy drop. He says that's not a city he'd want to live in. Eleanor Beardsley, NPR News, Paris. The Texas Supreme Court will hear arguments today in a case challenging its abortion laws. 20 patients and two OBGYNs have sued the state, arguing the medical exception that allows legal abortions during pregnancy complications is too narrow and putting patients' lives in jeopardy. NPR's Selena Simmons-Duffin has this preview. Denny Matheson is an OBGYN by profession, but she joined the lawsuit challenging Texas's abortion laws as a patient. When she was 18 weeks into her first pregnancy, she could tell that something was wrong right away at a prenatal appointment with a sonographer. As she scanned through my abdomen, I saw like, oh, there's there's something wrong with her spine. And then, oh, there's something wrong with her heart. Oh, what, what her kidneys. And I kept asking the sonographer to show me again because I could read the scan myself. She could also see the fetus had no brain structures. Matheson comes from a family of physicians. Her OBGYN was actually her aunt. After the scan, they talked. I think I asked one question. I said, is it lethal? And she said, yes. Matheson knew she wanted an abortion, but she knew that wasn't possible in Texas. Texas has three overlapping abortion bans. There is a medical exception for when a patient's life or, quote, major bodily function is in jeopardy. But the lawsuit brought by the Center for Reproductive Rights argues that language isn't enough and puts patients with pregnancy complications in difficult and sometimes dangerous situations. Danny Matheson was able to go to New Mexico for an abortion. Some of the other plaintiffs were not able to travel. Two developed sepsis, which can be deadly. Texas Attorney General Ken Paxton is fiercely defending the current abortion laws. His office has not responded to multiple requests for comment from NPR. In filings, lawyers for Texas argue the abortion law is clear, the medical exception is sufficient, and that doctors are responsible for any harms the patients claim. There are nine justices on the Texas Supreme Court. All are Republicans. Today, they consider whether there should be a temporary hold while the legal process continues, which would allow doctors more discretion to perform abortions in Texas when pregnancy complications arise. Selena Simmons-Duffin, NPR News. This is NPR News. 
We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Blue Cross Blue Shield of Massachusetts. Medicare plans for every lifestyle and budget. Visit bluecrossma.com go. And the lyric stage with Ken Ludwig's The Game's Afoot. This comedy mystery makes a memorable, multi-generational holiday outing through December 17th, lyricstage.com. What are the biggest threats to democracy? Well, misinformation, voter suppression, and how about the steep decline of local journalism? I'm Elsa Chang. WBUR and NPR believe that public media is the enduring future of local reporting. But we won't win the fight on our own. We need more member dollars to be your eyes and ears when important decisions are made, to bring more diverse voices into the conversation, and to be the ones to hold power to account. Become a member today at WBUR.org. Do your part to uphold democracy by making sure there is a free source of high-quality journalism for your community. That is what you do when you support WBUR, and listeners make up the largest share of WBUR's funding. We need you to do your part because our future is not guaranteed. It depends on you. And today is the day to think about that. It's Giving Tuesday on this first day of our year-end fundraiser here on WBUR's Morning Edition. I'm Rupa Shanoi here with Radio Boston host Tiziana Deering, and we're asking you to take action now when there is a match on the table and your contribution will be increased by 50%. Go to WBUR.org or call one 800 909 9287. You know, it's so important to understand what's happening around the corner, around the state, around the country, and around the world, as the last few stories you've heard on Morning Edition show. Mm -hmm. That's what we do here. And some members of our Murrow Society have said, hey, together, let's show on Giving Tuesday just how important that is. Let's express what we value, what we care about together. You give, we'll put 50% more on top of it. Your $10 a month becomes 15. Your 20 becomes 30. The average gift, uh, monthly gift is 16. That'll be 24. So much more power for us. If you step forward, join with other listeners who care the way you do. We know you care. Take advantage of this moment to show you care in this way. 1-800-909-9287 or WBUR.org. It's time to make your tax-deductible contribution to WBUR and get in on our Giving Tuesday match. Go to WBUR.org or call 1-800-909-9287. Think about how much you depend on WBUR every day for the news you need to understand the world from the conflict between Israel and Hamas to climate change. As you just heard there, we're having we're seeing flooding in the seaport and it's going to get worse to the deep division in Congress. And we heard about the impact of climate change in Paris. That was one of the stories you just heard. You also depend on us for lighter stories, stories that keep you going and lift you up amid these times that can feel, you know, pretty dark. Like a conversation we have today with musician John Baptiste about his marriage to his wife, who he first met as a teenager in band camp. Did you know that? No. So Band think... camp is not dark. No, it's not. <laughs> and that's that's the kind of stuff. That's the mix we need on mornings like this when the news is as as it is. We know that, and we think about you, and we bring you what you need every morning. We're coming back to you today saying, 
we need you to do your part and bring us what we need. That is what we need you to do when you go to WBUR.org or call 1-800-909-9287. Get in on this match. $100 becomes $150 a month. $500 becomes $750 a month. If you can, $1,000 a month becomes $1,500 a month. It adds up fast. Please act now. Thank you. You know, that voice you heard a minute ago was Daryl C. Murphy. Mm -hmm. He's part of the team that brought the field guide to Boston from WBUR. Restaurant tips, understanding our community, how to vote, how to get ready for winter. Mm -hmm. All the things that we bring you, all the things. Help bring all the things to your community and take advantage of this match. 1-800-909-9287 or WBUR.org. And thank you so much. Support for NPR comes from the station and from StoryWorth. Each week, StoryWorth emails a loved one a question about their life. After a year, they'll publish family memories into a bound book to keep forever. Learn more at StoryWorth.com. From the Nature Conservancy, partnering with communities across the globe to find solutions to the climate and biodiversity crises, committed to building a future where people and nature can thrive. Nature.org slash solutions and from the sustaining members of this NPR station. This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Michelle Martin. And I'm A. Martinez. There's an ongoing debate in this country over what books belong in libraries, but who's making the final decisions on what stays and what goes? There are efforts around the country to change who decides what books are made available to kids in schools and public libraries. Proposals range from giving parents more control to requiring content ratings on books, you know, like a PG or R rating on movies. Here's NPR's Toby Smith. As Carolyn Harrison sees it, the best way to convince people that the public library is stocking inappropriate books is to show them. Those two books are in the library. If you don't believe it, it's very graphic, very detailed. Harrison and Holly Stone with the group Parents Against Bad Books wave down passersby in front of the public library in Idaho Falls, Idaho, showing them books with what they call obscene sexual encounters that are a surprise to many. Well, the graphic pictures are taking away our children's innocence. They just don't care. No, they don't. As things work now, the process of classifying books is somewhat inconsistent. Books usually get an initial designation from authors and publishers. Then professional book reviewers weigh in with an age bracket that may be different. And then distributors and booksellers can too. But ultimately, librarians make the call on what they buy and where they put it. And wanted to know if you'd like to sign the petition. Harrison has been gathering signatures and pushing legislation in Idaho that would let parents weigh in on those decisions, too. They've told us here that, oh, no, you can't have parents involved. You must have experts choosing books for the children. Um, That makes no sense. Parents are the primary stakeholders for children. For their part, local libraries say most the library staff are parents. They're just not on the same page as groups like Parents Against Bad Books, which has challenged 16 titles. All have failed. The group has also listed what they call 52 bad books, including George M. Johnson's memoir, All Boys Aren't Blue, that contains some explicit descriptions of sexual scenes. But as is the case with most challenged books, one person's trash is another's treasure. I found it very enlightening. Idaho Falls Public Library Director Robert Wright calls the book All Boys Aren't Blue critical to young people's development, especially those struggling with issues around sexual identity. 
to me, it was a story of a young boy who felt maybe different, but the story that came through to me was how much his family supported him and loved him regardless. Wright says that book is already in the adult section, and a new tiered library card system allows parents to limit their kids to only checking out children's books, for example. If parents want even stricter control, Wright says, that's on them. But those who say it's the library's job are trying another tact. A proposal in Washington state would require libraries to use a universal rating system like the G, PG, and R designations that are voluntarily used by the movie industry. Excuse me, I have the floor. Things got testy as dozens of residents came out to testify for and against the idea at a recent Lewis County Board of Commissioners meeting. Chehalis resident Kyle Pratt read from the book Let's Talk About It that's kept in his library's teen section despite explicit content about sex acts and mature topics. Page 165. But there's nothing wrong with enjoying some porn. It's a fun, sugary treat. That's just one book, and that wasn't the worst. Under the plan proposed by Lewis County Commissioner Sean Swope, librarians would be required to rate books according to his criteria. G-rated books that are, quote, lighthearted and non-controversial would be available to anyone, for example, and books with, quote, explicit and sexual content would be restricted to adults only. We're not asking for anything that's unreasonable. This is a tool that we can provide for parents to tell whether or not this is an appropriate book for your child. And I mean, that innocence is, once it's gone, it's gone. Opponents argue Swope's categories are far too subjective, and they say ratings are already available nationally on multiple websites, ranging from one called Book Looks, that's a conservative perspective launched by a member of Moms for Liberty, to a more middle-of-the-road approach like Common Sense Media. And while it's one thing for private groups to offer that, or as in the case of movie ratings, for the industry to do it itself, opponents say government can't. It is not the place of the government to legislate morality. It just isn't. Lewis County resident Lori Lawson says as a mother of nine, she understands wanting to protect kids. But as a 25-year military veteran, she also understands protecting the First Amendment. I did not give up 25 years of my life for certain people to get to decide what other certain people get to do. That's not the way of it. Meantime, several other ways to change who decides what books should be in libraries have been enacted in Florida. A new state law, for example, says when a book is challenged, a decision can now be appealed to a special magistrate, meaning a state political appointee can now overrule a local school district. And even without challenging a book, people can still get it effectively banned. That's because the same law says if someone reads aloud from a book at a school board meeting and is stopped by the chair because the book is too explicit, that book must automatically be removed from schools. In other words, if it's too racy for a public meeting, it's too racy for a school library. 13 Reasons Why by Jay Asher, page 265. It's now become a way to effectively skirt the book challenge process. Pastor John Amanchukwu was one of many in Florida's Indian River County to read an explicit passage from a library book describing a sex act until the chair shut it down. Sir, I will stop you there. I just said, I've stopped you from reading. It's going to be removed. Dozens of books have been removed from Florida schools that way. There's another way people around the nation are effectively sidestepping long-standing library book selection policies. And just stack the books right up. Stack them all on there? Yep. 
As Carolyn Harrison and Holly Stone in Idaho Falls have figured out, they can just check out the books they object to up to a dozen at a time. We kept forgetting to, to take them back. Somehow we kept forgetting. So many of them are simply not on the shelves right now. So we're looking at this as a positive. Along the same lines, those seeking to restrict books are finding that simply keeping the pressure on is enough to make some libraries do the job for them and self-censor, opting to avoid buying or keeping any books that are likely to be challenged. Tovia Smith, NPR News. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm e. Martinez. And I'm Michelle Martin. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Swan Galleries, with an auction of modern and post-war art on November 30th, featuring works from the early 1900s through mid-century modernism with sculpture and paintings. Catalog, bidding, and exhibition information at swanauctiongalleries.com and on the Swan app. And Revision Energy. Sunbug Solar is now part of Revision Energy, a solar installer committed to fighting climate change in New England. Sunbugsolar.com. We're closing out our first full hour of our year-end fundraiser here at WBUR, and we are on a roll. There's a 50% match on the table, and listeners like you are taking advantage of it to make sure their contribution does more for WBUR. We're asking you to join them and be part of the community that makes WBUR possible. Take responsibility for making sure everyone around you has access to high-quality, unbiased journalism. And show your gratitude on this Giving Tuesday when you look at what you can give at the end of the year and give to the organizations you depend on. We are your companion as you maybe get ready for work, maybe as you make lunches and take the kids to school. We make it possible for you to do what you need to do and learn about what you need to know about the world at the same time, like the story you just heard about efforts around the country to ban books. You and your community get all of that for free, except it's not for free. People around you give to make it possible. We need you to join them because that is what it takes to keep this service coming to you at the level you expect. Go to WBUR.org or call 1-800-909-9287. I'm Morning Edition host Rupa Shanoi here with Radio Boston host Tiziana Deering. Hello, Rupa. Good morning, everyone. It's always such a privilege to be a part of your morning routine. I know how hectic mine is, how many things have to be done, and how much I rely on you, Rupa, every morning to help let me know what's happening in the world, what's happening in the country, what's happening in my neighborhood. Uh, Because you value that, because you rely on us, on this Giving Tuesday, we're asking you to show it in a special and particular way which is with a tax-deductible gift. And some members of our Murrow Society are saying, hey, we value WBUR the same way you do. We know this is important, so let's do this together. You come to the table, make a gift, we'll make it go 50% further. We'll show on Giving Tuesday that WBUR is one of those organizations that's important and that we want to say is important. So a $10 a month gift becomes 15. The average gift is 16 a month, that's 24. If you can do one of the big ones, a $100 a month gift becomes 150. If you're doing a one-time gift, $1,000 becomes 1,500. Whatever it is, on this Giving Tuesday, when we step outside of ourselves to give and show what's important to us, those Moreau Society members are saying, let's do this together for WBUR and let's do it now.
1-800-909-9287 or WBUR.org. Giving Tuesday is about essentially voting with your wallet for the organizations that you feel are meaningful for your community. You know why WBUR is meaningful for your community. You listen every morning. But in case you needed uh, a reminder... We are in a huge housing crisis here in Massachusetts. We're in a huge crisis of people who need housing. The state is spending more than $45 million a month to house people temporarily in hotels, shelters, college dorms, a military base. There are more than 180,000 people waiting for state-subsidized housing. And actually, our investigative team found out that more than 2,000 state-subsidized units are actually sitting empty. And on the Friday, we published the investigation. State housing officials launched an initiative to accelerate addressing the vacancy issue that was revealed in our reporting. And that is concrete impact that we bring you absolutely every single morning. We are your watchdog. That is what we do for you and your community. We need you to support it right now by going to WBUR.org or calling one 800 909 9287. And you'll get it matched. And it's Giving Tuesday. Don't wait. Do it now. WBUR.org. And thank you. WBUR supporters include AMS and the Weather Channel, presenting the power of precipitation. Here, scientists discuss whether we're getting more or less snow, what a winter El Nino means, how ocean temperatures affect our weather, and more. December 1st at City Space. Delicious food and drinks included. Tickets at itowardsthesky.com and Boston University Academy, where kind and curious high school students who love to learn thrive. Virtual open house November 29th, buacademy.org. I'm Weekend Edition host Sharon Brody, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. You can listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Corva Coleman. The pause in fighting between Israel and Hamas has now gone into a fifth day. Both sides agreed to extend the pause by another two days. NPR's Daniel Estrin says it's dependent on the release of hostages and prisoners. Israel's offer is for every 10 Israelis released, Israel will release 30 Palestinians and extend the ceasefire another day. So over the next two days, we're expecting 20 Israelis and 60 Palestinians to be freed. And we're going to have to see if more foreign nationals like Thai guest workers are released as well in separate deals. U.S. officials say Hamas is holding around nine Americans hostage. President Biden, Vice President Harris and their spouses will be among the dignitaries attending an invitation-only tribute service today in Georgia for former First Lady Rosalind Carter. NPR's Tamara Keith reports they're not expected to deliver remarks. Former First Ladies Melania Trump, Michelle Obama, Laura Bush, and Hillary Clinton are all expected to attend the service, according to the Carter Center. There will be performances by the Atlanta Symphony Orchestra and country music stars Garth Brooks and Trisha Yearwood, who the center describes as family friends. There are no politicians listed among the speakers, though plenty are expected to attend, including President Biden. Press Secretary Corrine Jean-Pierre said he and the First Lady look forward to participating in the event 
by attending. Rosalind Carter is being remembered as an advocate for mental health care and as a first lady who was a true partner and trusted advisor to her husband. Tamara Keith, NPR News. The Texas Supreme Court will hear arguments today in a case challenging the state's abortion laws. As NPR's Selena Simmons-Duffin reports, 20 women who had pregnancy complications are suing the state, arguing the medical exception for abortions is too narrow. This case, brought by the Center for Reproductive Rights, includes several patients who faced extremely serious fetal diagnoses. Others had their water break too early. Two of those plaintiffs developed sepsis, which can be deadly. Texas Attorney General Ken Paxton is fiercely defending the state's current abortion laws and arguing that the case should be dismissed. He says any harm the plaintiffs suffered was caused by their doctors, not Texas's laws. The nine justices of the Supreme Court will hear both sides, and then they'll weigh in on whether doctors can have more discretion as the legal process continues to perform abortions in Texas when pregnancy complications arise. Selena Simmons-Duffin, NPR News. Meanwhile, the state of Idaho is asking the U.S. Supreme Court to allow its near-total ban on abortions to take effect while it's being challenged. Idaho wants to prosecute doctors who perform abortions in certain emergencies. That's on hold because it conflicts with federal rules on emergency care. You're listening to NPR News. From WBUR in Boston, I'm Rupa Shanoi. The three men of Palestinian descent shot in Burlington, Vermont, remain hospitalized. Police say the men were speaking a mix of Arabic and English while on a walk Saturday evening when they were shot. They say two of them were wearing traditional Palestinian scarves. Rich Price is one of the victim's uncles. His family hosted all three for Thanksgiving, and he's visited them in the hospital. I'm blown away by their resilience, by their good humor in the face of these difficult times. I moved here 15 years ago, and uh, I never imagined that this sort of thing could happen. Police are investigating the shooting as a possible hate crime. The suspect pleaded not guilty yesterday. Advocates are calling on state officials and Massachusetts residents to help homeless families find a warm and safe place to stay during the day. The state is using conference rooms to accommodate roughly two dozen homeless families who are on the shelter wait list. But as WBWAR's Gabriela Emanuel reports, that's only overnight. Families must leave the conference rooms at 6 a.m. and they can't return until 6 p.m. Where do they spend the day? What's the plan? Gerald Gabot runs Immigrant Family Services Institute. She's been helping the families and says they've been bouncing between nonprofits and religious institutions. She worries about them spending their days on the street. It's a wheel ping pong, loading families left and right, very dehumanizing in a way. A state spokesperson counters that families can receive services at one of the state's two family welcome centers. Families sleeping in the conference rooms represent just a portion of the 91 families on the wait list for the state-run family shelter system. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Gabriela Emanuel. Boston Public Schools plans to delay the rollout of a new plan for English language learners. Starting next year, those students would spend most of their day in general education classrooms. School officials tell the Boston Globe most students will now not will now will not move until 2025. Many members of the district's English Learners Task Force resigned over the plan less than a month ago. School officials say they made the change based on feedback from teachers.
The Cambridge City Council could vote today on whether to ban gas-powered leaf blowers. They're considering a proposal that would gradually phase out the equipment by 2025. Those in favor of the ban say the tools are bad for the environment. Gas-powered leaf blowers are also banned in Lexington, Belmont, and Concord. It's 8.07. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Ocean State Job Lot, partnering with customers to help veterans stay warm by giving coats to those in need. OceanStateJobLot.com. And Cambridge Arts, presenting its holiday art market December 1st to 3rd. See and shop the creativity that is Cambridge. CambridgeArtsCouncil.org. The Bruins lost to the Blue Jackets 5-2 last night in Columbus. In their last three games, Boston has given up 17 goals. The Bees are now off until Thursday. Tonight at the Garden, the Celtics will take on the Chicago Bulls. Partly sunny today, it'll be in the upper 30s, clear overnight with temperatures in the 20s, increasing clouds tomorrow and back to the upper 30s. It's 36 degrees in Boston. Thanks for listening to WBUR. WBUR supporters include the George Lucas Educational Foundation, creator of Edutopia, for 30 years committed to advancing educational innovations and research that improves pre-K to 12 learning. More at edutopia.org. Our Giving Tuesday match is happening now, and it'll make your support of WBUR 50% larger. Give at WBUR.org or call 1-800-909-9287. It's a Tuesday morning on WBUR, and you are listening to Morning Edition, as you always do, because we are your dependable companion and source of news absolutely every single morning when you are getting ready for your day. We're coming back to you on this Giving Tuesday, asking you to make sure this service continues. We're kicking off our year-end fundraiser, and there's a 50% match on the table that will make your contribution do even more for WBUR. So we need you to act now, especially now, when you can start this fundraiser off right with the momentum it needs. And momentum is a real thing. It like, is. What you do now may determine what happens with this fundraiser and what happens with WBUR support. So we need you to act. Go to WBUR.org or call 1-800-909-9287. I'm Morning Edition host Rupa Shinoy here with Radio Boston host Tiziana Deering, who you just heard there. And here she is again. To tell you about the match that happens today because it is Giving Tuesday, where we step outside of ourselves and say through our giving, this is what's important to me. Some members of our Murrow Society are saying, let's do this together. You make a gift, we'll do more. We'll Mm -hmm. give another 50%. Together we'll say, show how important WBUR is. $10 a month becomes 15, 20 becomes 30. You know how this works. The number is 1-800-909-9287. The website is WBUR.org. And I want to show you why it matters. When you do this, you take advantage of the match and you become a sustaining member, you help make sure that we produce the kind of journalism that holds people accountable and makes real change in the community. Uh, Let's give an example. Gabriella Emanuel's month-long coverage of our emergency family shelter system. Massachusetts has one of the country's only state-run family shelter systems, and thousands of families turn to this system at their hardest moment. And this year, what happened is that there was a record number of parents and children in our state that needed a homeless shelter. Some of these people were longtime residents, others were new arrivals, but there were so many people that the state had to close the doors and create a wait list. 
This is something that has never happened before in the system's 40-year history. For the first time ever, like, we really had nowhere to send a family. They were just completely drained. They didn't want any sort of dinner. Like, the mom, she kept telling us, Se nos quito el hambre, which means, like, my hunger was taken from me because of the stress. This is one of the stories we brought you from a community group that stretched very thin. We also heard from lawmakers who hold the purse strings, pastors, advocates, local and state officials, and even experts in other places with similar predicaments. And of course, we heard from the families who are seeking answers and seeking help. I'm a single dad of two boys, and both my son has medical issues where it's almost impossible for me to go to work. And last time I checked, it's 28 degrees outside this morning. Where the hell am I going with my children? Our state's right to shelter law is this pretty unique commitment to support our most vulnerable neighbors. But the system is at a breaking point, and it's up to the state, the community, the people to figure out what happens next. At WBUR, our job is to distill what's important in this kind of messy and complicated system. We're doing it because you need the information in order to be engaged and involved in charting that path forward. I can't tell you how complicated this story mm-hmm. is and the work that Gabriela Emanuel has had to do to keep bringing it to you. And it relies on your financial support because you know how important these kinds of stories are. On this Giving Tuesday, show that you value it at 1-800-909-9287 or at WBUR.org. Yeah, I know. There's a reason. You work here. There's a reason I work here. That's right. uh, That's why we work here is because we get to do and we get to support the work like Gabriella's. I'm always so proud when I'm able to introduce a story by her because it is such good journalism and such important journalism. We need you to support that journalism. We need you to act now when there is a 50% match on the table. A group of WBWAR listeners thinks it's that important for you to give. They will match 50% of whatever you give. Go to WBWAR.org or call 1-800-909-9287. And thank you so much. WBUR supporters include the ICA, innovative new art by Boston-area artists in the 2023 Foster Prize Exhibition, on view now, icaboston.org, and MathWorks, creators of MATLAB and Simulink, sponsoring Discovery Museum's more than 2,500 traveling science workshops for Massachusetts schools, and Metro West Subaru, where same-day and next-day service appointments are available service until 9 on Route 9 in Natick. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Michelle Martin in Washington, D.C. And I'm A. Martinez in Los Angeles, California. Authorities are investigating whether the shooting of three young men of Palestinian descent in Vermont was a hate crime. A 48-year-old man is being held in jail. He has pleaded not guilty to three counts of attempted murder. Local law enforcement is working with the Justice Department on the investigation. Vermont Public's Brittany Patterson is covering this. Uh, Brittany, tell us what happened last week. Sure. So authorities say the three college students were visiting one of the victim's relatives here in Vermont over the Thanksgiving break, something they had done before, and they were doing typical college student break things, hanging out, eating, relaxing. Early on Saturday evening, the men were walking down a residential street, and two of them were wearing the traditional Palestinian scarf. They were speaking a mixture of English and Arabic, and authorities say they were confronted by a white man with a handgun. 
Police say Jason Eaton did not speak before opening fire. Who are the victims and how are they doing? Yeah, we've learned a lot more about these young men in recent days. One of them is Hashem Awatani. He goes to Brown University in Rhode Island. He's a math and archaeology major. Kanand Abdal Hamid attends Haverford College in Pennsylvania. He's studying biology. He runs track. And Tassin Hamed goes to Trinity College in Connecticut. He's also a math major. He's also pre-med and recently qualified to be an EMT. These boys have been friends for 12 years. They went to Quaker school together in the West Bank, and their family describes them as polite, generous, the brightest of the bright. You know, they did model UN together. The family said yesterday that they were grateful for the charges, but they fear that the young men were targeted for being Arab Americans. Elizabeth Price is Hashem's mom, and she spoke to NPR from her home in the Israeli-occupied West Bank. My husband didn't want Hisham to come back for Christmas because he thought America would be safe, safer than, than Palestine. And my husband is so bitter. He was worried about the boys being targeted as being Palestinian, but they thought he thought in Burlington that wouldn't happen. As of yesterday, all of the men remained in the ICU. Hashem's family said that the doctors told them it's unlikely he will be able to use his legs again. And I'll note Burlington's mayor spoke with President Joe Biden yesterday, who also pledged additional federal resources. We know that uh, authorities haven't revealed the suspect's motive, but they are investigating all this as a possible hate crime. They are. And I want to note, Vermont doesn't have a standalone hate crime charge. Instead, prosecutors can add what they call as a hate crime enhancement. And that's if the suspect's actions they believe are motivated by bias toward a protected class like race. And the bar is really high with these hate crime enhancements. The state has to prove intent beyond a reasonable doubt. They need a lot of evidence. And authorities say that may not happen. If added to a charge, One of these enhancements could increase the criminal penalties that a suspect faces, although I'll note in this case, the suspect Eaton already faces 20 to life for each of those attempted murder charges. So a state hate crime charge in this case wouldn't affect his sentence. And federal prosecutors could also bring a hate crime charge. And with Eaton, the suspect, uh, how did he get the gun? You know, so we learned a little more about him yesterday. Eaton himself is new to Vermont, according to authorities. Police say they've only had one interaction with him. It was a traffic stop and there was nothing to note. And we learned that he purchased the gun legally a few months ago through a licensed firearms dealer in the state. And that sale was not flagged. Okay, that's Vermont Public's Brittany Patterson. Brittany, thanks. Thank you. As we just heard, the authorities haven't yet determined that the shooting of three college students of Palestinian descent who were visiting Vermont for Thanksgiving was, in fact, a hate crime. But they and others in the community clearly suspect that it was. And as shocking as it was, it wasn't the only suspected hate incident since the war between Israel and Hamas began in October. Experts who track these kinds of events say there has been a noticeable increase in recent weeks. We called Alex Piquero to talk more about this. He is a professor of criminology at the University of Miami and the former director of the Bureau of Justice Statistics, which is the federal agency that keeps tracks of these kinds of things. Good morning, Professor. Good morning, Michelle. Happy to be with you. So can you just give us a brief overview of hate crimes more broadly in the U.S.? And has that changed in recent months? I'm, I'm wondering who generally are the targets and who generally is committing them? Uh, that's, a, that's a really good question and sometimes difficult to answer because we have hate crimes and we have hate incidents. And both of them are reported differently to different agencies. 
That said, what we can see from non-federal data that's tracked this over the last month and a half is we do see increases in both crimes and especially incidences uh, against individuals of uh, uh, Jewish and Palestinian um, descent. So because of the war between Israel and Hamas, most people, I think people would assume that most crimes and incidents are religiously based violence. But I take it that's not generally the case. It's still that, race. Is, is that accurate? That is correct. If you look at the long term trends using the FBI's uh, hate crime data, you see that the most common hate crimes are against race and ethnic origin. But but I take it you don't think hate crime or hate incident numbers are being reported accurately in general. And is that because you think they're underreported or overreported? Uh, they're actually underreported. And here's the problem. The FBI's data relies on law enforcement agencies to provide that information to the federal government. What we have a problem with is not every agency reports those data to the federal government because they're not required to do so. So you have different agencies reporting hate crimes every year or every other year to the federal government. What the Bureau of Justice Statistics data shows from the National Crime Victimization Survey is that four out of every 10 violent hate crime victimizations, Michelle, are not reported Mm -hmm. at all which means that whatever number we get from the FBI's hate crime data is an underreport. So in my mind, I don't know what the number is, but the number is way too high. And we need to encourage people who are victimized to report those incidents to law enforcement and then to get the services that they need to deal with it. So so let's talk a little bit more about this. I mean, there was there was outrage earlier this month after Elon Musk supported this false anti-Semitic conspiracy theory on social media. And, you know, of course, former President Trump has a long history of spreading derogatory racial and ethnic messages. And there have been other celebrities, frankly, who've been criticized for saying, you know, things like this. But do how much impact do you think it, it has when leading politicians or celebrities you know, make these kinds of messages? Do you think that it makes a difference? Uh, It certainly doesn't help the cause. I think what people who are in a position of leadership, position of power, position of recognition, you know, the onus is on them to set an example of leading with civility, of leading with humility, and of leading with ethical morality. They, people look up to them to, to, to show a path forward, and they should be preaching positive views, not negative views against anybody. And one of the great things about our country, Michelle, is we live in a, a country of diversity. We should be celebrating that diversity and encouraging conversation and encouraging cooperation and working together. So so let's say that these some of these messages are already out there. And I take it, even though you believe these incidents are, are, are underreported, you do think it is accurate that there has been an increase in hate incidents or hate-motivated incidents directed at people of Jewish uh, Jewish descent, people of, of Arab or Muslim affiliation, right? So, yeah, and that's various data sources um, that are not related to the government are tracking those and they are okay. reporting increases. But remember, so, Michelle, they also could be reporting people who are actually reporting more of it. So we okay. got to be very mindful of that too. Wait, okay, wait, so the question then is, since some of this messaging is already out there, what yeah. would make a difference in counteracting it? I think people just have to bear in mind that, you know, these are human beings on both sides of the equation. And we have to dial down the rhetoric and dial down the vial and the hate and try to come up with some sort of path where we all agree on. And that takes leadership and it takes people who don't agree with some of the things going on in the world to set a tone and set a message of one of civility and acceptance. That is Alex Pacero. He's a criminologist at the University of Miami and the former director of the Bureau of Justice Statistics. That's a federal agency, as we said, that keeps track of these these kinds of incidents. Professor Pacero, thanks so much for sharing these insights with us. My pleasure.
He was called the king of Saturday morning television. Marty Croft died on Saturday. In the 1960s and 70s, he and his older brother Sid made trippy children's shows with huge oddball puppets. They sent a family deep underground to fight dinosaurs in Land of the Lost. High on the rapids, they struck their tiny raft. And it got even trippier. Sid and Marty Croft earned legions of fans when they sent young Jimmy into a magical world to meet his friend Freddy the Flute, the evil Witchy Poo, and the title character, the dragon H.R. Puffinstuff. H.R. Puffinstuff, who's your friend when things get rough? H.R. Puffinstuff, can't do a little cause he can't do enough. Only 17 episodes of H.R. Puffin Stuff were made, but it became a cult classic among Gen X kids and stoners. Most people thought we were smoking while we were doing the show. <laughs> that was Marty Croft in a DVD interview from 2000. Sid and Marty both got their start as puppeteers. And after Sid found success and went on tour, Marty wanted to do it too. So I got most of my education in the streets of the Bronx while my brother was in Europe doing his act. And when he was ultimately signed to go tour with Judy Garland, that's when I joined my brother and with our puppet act. They went on to make what they called the first adults-only puppet show in 1962. From there, they designed costumes for TV shows before eventually creating their own. Their success led to many, many other shows, such as Sigmund and the Sea Monsters and the Croft Super Show. In an interview, Marty recalled the enthusiasm of his fans, including a few who cornered him in a public bathroom. They sang 14 theme songs to me in the, in the toilet. So I, I mean, these are the things that probably make it all worth it. You say, hey, I did something that meant something. You know, I know we didn't save any lives, but we made a few people happy out there. Marty Croft died of kidney failure, according to a family representative. He was 86 years old. He survived by his brother, Sid, who's now 94. This is NPR News. WBUR supporters include the Home for Little Wanderers, creating better, brighter futures for kids because no child should go through life alone. Thehome.org. Hi, I'm Cristela Guerra. I'm Amelia Mason. I'm Ariel Gray. And I'm Andrea Shea. We're WBUR's arts and culture reporters. Every year, we fan out to find emerging artists of color for our series, The Makers. It's a lot of work, but we're honored to share their boundless creativity, which comes in so many forms. You would have known that I wasn't strong enough to hold on. If you don't love me when I was with you. There's music, photography, sculpture, dance, storytelling, even... Yes, motorcycles. The Makers is just one of the ways we help you discover and learn about the groundbreaking artists in our midst. Boston's vibrant art scene is crucial to seeing and understanding ourselves in ways nothing else can. I think that is the power of art, that it's like an alchemy. You can take even your struggles and you can convert it into something beautiful that other people can experience and, and be fulfilled by. Your support today will help us introduce you 
to the next maker. The next painter. The next sculptor. The next musician. I'm not just a boy, I'm a man. I'm not just a man, I'm a god. I'm not just a god, I'm a maker. Our amazing team of arts reporters, they're talking about just a fraction of the stories they bring you about the arts and culture that are important to you, that you want to know about, but maybe you wouldn't know about without their stories on WBWAR's Morning Edition or All Things Considered or on Radio Boston. We're asking you to think about those ways we enrich your life on this Giving Tuesday, the day set aside after all the Black Friday mayhem and the Cyber Monday frenzied buying for you to think about the organizations you care about and make your year-end contributions. This is the day we're kicking off our year-end fundraiser here at WBUR, and we need you to be part of it. You are key to what we bring you every day, from arts coverage to the important update you just heard on the shootings of the three men of Palestinian descent in Vermont. That coverage depends on your support. We need you to step up now, especially now, when your contribution will be matched 50% by a group of dedicated WBUR listeners who think it's really important for you to join the people who make WBUR possible. You need to be one of them. Go to WBUR.org or call 1-800-909-9287. I'm Morning Edition host Rupa Shanoi, and I'm here with Radio Boston host Tiziana Deering. Hi, Rupa. It's so good to be with you here on Giving Tuesday. That day during the year when we step outside ourselves, outside the consumerism of the moment and say, let's show what matters, what's important to us, what our values are by how we give. Uh, And you've just talked about all the important stories that we bring. And we heard those makers. I got to confess that motorcycle artist, one of my all-time favorites. Her work was magnificent. (laughs) And we bring you, right, the tough stories and the joy, right, and the magnificence of our local creations. Today, if you, when you give, <laughs> members of our Murrow Society have said, listen, let's do this together. Let's show just how important it is to support everything WBUR brings you on this day, when this day says this is what's important. 1-800-909-9287 puts 50% more on your gift. $10 a month becomes $15. $100 a month becomes $150. WBUR.org on this Giving Tuesday puts you in community with other listeners who share your values, who share your love of WBUR, and want to help move us forward together. You can't see it, but Tiziana is pounding on the table. <laughs> she is Quietly, because the- these are strong microphones. Exactly, exactly. We have an amazing way to say thank you when on the table right now that you can be part of when you give. It is a sweepstakes to go anywhere in the world. That is a big statement to absorb, so I'll say it again. Anywhere in the world. Truly. Budapest, Czech Republic, Poland. I'm kind of stuck in that part of the world right now, but those are just examples. South Africa, New Zealand, Sri Lanka. Yeah, I knew you were going to say You clearly want to go to New Zealand. No, I asked Steve Brown yesterday. He said he'd go to New Zealand. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Okay. You think about where you want to go. That is your choice. You can be part of that and get that chance while also supporting WBUR. Just go to WBUR.org or call 1-800-909-9287. And thank you so much. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Workday, committed to helping organizations adapt to change. Using real-time data to uncover insights, stay decision-ready, and prepare for whatever's next. 
the finance, HR, and planning system for a changing world. From Indeed, designed to be an end-to-end -end hiring solution for businesses of all sizes to attract, interview, and hire candidates, all from one platform. Learn more at indeed.com NPR. And from your part-time controller, specializing in nonprofit accounting. Your part-time controller helps nonprofit organizations with their accounting needs, remotely or in person. More at yourparttimecontroller.com. This is NPR. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Dave Mattingly. Hamas is expected to release more hostages today now that the four-day pause in fighting with Israel has been extended to six. Yesterday, Hamas freed another 11 hostages, women and children, kidnapped when the militants attacked southern Israel on October 7th. Among those set free were a 16-year-old girl and her 12-year-old brother. Abby Own is a cousin of their mother. We know that physically they're okay. Their first reunion was with their mother, and I think that's the most critical piece of it, that they got hugs and love and the feeling of some safety after 52 days in captivity. She was speaking to ABC News. Since the pause in fighting began, Israel has released 150 Palestinians from Israeli jails. Rescue teams in India say they're getting closer to reaching 41 men who've been trapped underground in the Himalayas for more than two weeks. A landslide collapsed a section of a three-mile highway tunnel where they were working. Since then, authorities have been supplying them with oxygen, food, water, and medicine through a large pipe. President Biden and First Lady Jill Biden will be traveling to Georgia today to attend a memorial service for former First Lady Rosalind Carter. She died earlier this month at the age of 96. That service will be held on the campus of Emory University in Atlanta. This is NPR News. From WBUR in Boston, I'm Rupa Shanoi. Anita Mann says his family is celebrating the release of his two young cousins who were kidnapped by Hamas last month. Jason Greenberg says 16-year-old Sahar and 12-year-old Rez Calderon were among the 11 Israeli hostages released in yesterday's prisoner exchange. Their father, Ofer Calderon, is believed to still be a hostage in Gaza. Greenberg says two of his other relatives were killed by Hamas last month. The number of Massachusetts families that cannot afford food is at a historic high. According to the local nonprofit Project Bread, about one in five families with children are considered food insecure. That's higher than the rates of food insecurity the state saw early in the pandemic. Project Bread director Aaron McAleer says inflation remains a primary driver. So the cost of food, as an example, is still incredibly high. But the other really big thing that's happened in Massachusetts, but also across the country, is that a lot of the supports that were in place during the pandemic have gone away. She says that includes unemployment assistance and the child tax credit. McAleer says her organization is working to incorporate food access programs into Medicaid. The company that owns a chemical plant in Newburyport, where a worker died earlier this year, plans to shut down the facility. A spokesperson for Sequence PCI Synthesis tells the Newburyport Daily News that it will permanently close the plant and help the affected employees. One person died and four others were hurt in an explosion at the plant in May. The company was hit with nearly $300,000 in federal fines for not following safety procedures. 
Cities and towns across Massachusetts are gearing up for winter by hiring plow truck drivers. Some communities say they're on track to hire enough drivers, but for others, it's a harder sell. Jim Feeney is the town manager of Arlington. He says from the cost of insurance to the cost of equipment, it's been getting more expensive to be a plow truck driver. Factors sort of when stacked together have been leading us down this path where it's not necessarily is lucrative or even worth it sometimes for folks to sign up to be plow drivers, given that we've had some unpredictable winters in terms of the number of snow events or the amount of earning potential that the winter offers. Arlington is offering an incentive for its drivers. They'll be guaranteed to make at least $3,500 for the season, regardless of how many storms they work. It's 835. WBUR supporters include Babson. Top-ranked in entrepreneurship by U.S. News & World Report, Babson's MBA prepares you to tackle global challenges. Babson.edu slash MBA. The Bruins' offense was quiet last night in Columbus. The Bees lost to the Blue Jackets 5-2. The Bruins' next game is Thursday at home against the San Jose Sharks. Tonight at the Garden, the Celtics will host the Chicago Bulls. Highs in the upper 30s today under partly sunny skies. Mostly clear tonight as it falls to the mid-20s. Tomorrow, highs in the upper 30s again, and it'll grow increasingly cloudy throughout the day. It's 36 degrees in Boston. You're with WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Organic Valley, a farmer-owned cooperative dedicated to providing ethically sourced food from small organic family farms across the country. Learn more at ov.coop slash ethically sourced. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Nervive Nerve Relief, Nervive is designed to reduce occasional nerve aches, weakness, and discomfort in hands or feet due to aging. Learn more at NerviveHealth.com. This is NPR. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Michelle Martin in Washington, D.C. And I'm Martinez in Los Angeles, California. There are now fewer than 50 days until the Iowa caucuses. That's when Republican voters will make their first choices in the 2024 race for their presidential nominee. The once crowded field of Republicans has shrunk and the remaining candidates are trailing far behind Donald Trump. Iowa Public Radio's Clay Masters is here to give us an update. Clay, I was in Iowa three weeks ago and back then Trump had a big lead over the rest of the field. It sounds like not much has changed. That's right. Good morning. Not much has changed other than this crowded field we saw take shape over the spring and summer is winnowing. Former Vice President Mike Pence got out and so did South Carolina Senator Tim Scott. Former President Donald Trump also indicated in Fort Dodge, Iowa, a couple weeks ago that a big win in Iowa could really help clear the field for him early. We have to send a great signal and then maybe these people just say, "Okay, it's over now. It's over. We got to end it because we have to focus on crooked Joe Biden and the Democrats. So this is really unlike any caucus I've seen. You just don't usually have one candidate so far ahead throughout the entire cycle. None of the other candidates, including those who are battling over second place, I'm talking Florida Governor Ron DeSantis and former U.N. Ambassador Nikki Haley, are coming anywhere near Trump's support in the state. And another thing that makes this one so different is you have the current governor of Iowa, Kim Reynolds, endorsing a candidate ahead of the caucuses. This is a big rarity, and she's backing DeSantis because she says Trump can't win in a general election. Thing is, though, politicians are still going to Iowa. So who are they trying to win over? We can get specific here. Evangelical Christians, they take up an outsized role in Iowa's Republican electorate, much larger than the party as a whole. And they really back Trump. 
But some evangelical leaders see opportunity. The family leader, this evangelical Christian group that wields a lot of power in Iowa, held a Thanksgiving family forum. DeSantis, Haley, and Vivek Ramaswamy were there. I should note Trump was invited but did not show up. And DeSantis tried to set himself apart from Trump to sway those potentially swingable voters. I'm going to be focused on your issues. I'm going to be a disciplined and, and, and focused leader in a way that, that obviously Donald Trump is not in a position uh, to be able to do that. So I view his candidacy as high risk with low reward. After that forum, the head of the family leader, Bob Vanderplotz, who's historically known for endorsing the eventual caucus winner, came out in support of DeSantis, again saying he doesn't believe Trump can win in a general election. And that's the thing, right? A very few in the Republican Party are saying we don't want Trump to be the nominee because he's facing felony charges to try and overturn the last election or the threat he may pose to democracy. It's we don't think he can win. Yeah, not less than 50 days to go, as I mentioned. Um, and the caucuses, in case anyone's wondering, January 15th. So mark that day on your calendar. Um, what's left? I mean, what are you expecting, Clay? Caucus goers reward those politicians who show up in the state a lot. DeSantis plans to complete his 99-county tour of Iowa with a stop in the small town of Newton over this weekend. All these campaigns are hoping for a big turnout. With the race seen as a foregone conclusion by many, there might be some fatigue for voters who may not want to go out on a cold night, you know, before school and work the next day. But campaigns aren't the only ones who want those church basements and school gyms full. The Republican Party here wants to keep making the case for Iowa to go first in 2028, especially when you might remember National Democrats have indicated that they're done with the Iowa caucuses moving forward. When I was there, Clay, it was 45 degrees in Iowa. People were out on Election Day in T-shirts, so I think, I think <laughs> they'll be fine. Clay Masters of Iowa Public Radio. Clay, thanks. You're welcome. It's even colder now. <laughs> We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Institute for Experiential AI at Northeastern University. Join Stephen Wolfram, a computer and data science pioneer, for a free seminar, From Fundamental Physics to AI, November 29th, virtually or in person. Register at ai.northeastern.edu. And Weston Nurseries. Tis the season to visit for holiday trees, greens, ornaments, and home decor. Hingham, Hopkinton, and Chelmsford, or online at Weston Nurseries. Nurseries.com. Today is Giving Tuesday, a day to strengthen organizations that have a deep impact in our lives and our communities. I'm Daryl C. Murphy. When you support WBUR today, you give us the fuel to produce journalism and enriching experiences that foster understanding, connection, and community. Give by midnight to get in on our Giving Tuesday match. Several members of our Murrow Society gave their money to make your support of WBUR 50% stronger. Get in on this at WBUR.org or call 1-800-909-9287. Daryl C. Murphy there, host of our daily podcast, The Common. He said his name, but I like saying his name. For I some know. Reason, it just rolls off the tongue. He was talking about Giving Tuesday. This is when you support the organizations you care about and we know that WBUR is right there at the top of your list because you listen every morning and you value the companionship and high-quality news we bring you every day. We keep you ahead of the news and we help you understand what's unfolding around us and why it's happening. But we need your help to maintain our strong, independent, nonprofit journalism that you depend on every day. 
So we're asking you to please give at WBUR.org or call 1-800-909-9287. I'm Morning Edition host Rupa Shinoy here with Radio Boston host Tiziana Deering. And we're kicking off our year-end fundraiser asking for your support to keep WBUR going, especially now when there's a 50% match on the table. And Tiziana's looking at me like she's going to tell you more about that. Well, I am because on Giving Tuesday, part of the point of having a gift Tuesday is to invite people on this day to step outside of themselves, to step outside of what we've been doing on Thanksgiving if you observe it and eat a lot, and then Black (laughs) Friday if you shop, and Cyber Monday if you shop again, to think about how you want to express what you value. And today, some members of our Murrow Society have said, let's together really show how much we value what WBUR does for us day in and day out. There are probably other organizations you value, too, and I respect that. I used to run a nonprofit organization, Mm -hmm. but I bet there's no organization you turn to the way you turn to WBUR every day in so many ways for news, information, joy, city space events. The members of our Murrow Society are saying, let's do this together, put some money on the table, we'll put 50% more forward. You do $10 a month to sustain WBUR, we'll make it 15 You do 16 a month, the average gift, we'll make it 24 The dollar amount is less important than coming in community with others and saying, today we will show that WBUR is something we value and we want to keep going and bring to our community, 1-800-909-9287 or WBUR.org today. And we, an NPR story on uh, Giving Tuesday mentioned that this is essentially like voting with your wallet. We need you to vote for WBUR. This is when you, sh- you show your support. And if you need a reminder about what you are supporting, think about it. More than 30 NPR journalists have spent time in Israel or Gaza since the start of the conflict. And think about the names that you know. I'll just throw them out. Anthony Brooks, Walter Wuthman, Ron Elving, Tamara Keith. So many names that you know just off the top of your head because you listen and you depend on these journalists to bring you news every day that you know you can trust. That service needs your support. It only happens with your support. And there is a 50% match on the table that will make your contribution go even farther. You can have the satisfaction of knowing that you are doing as much as you can for WBUR. So go to WBUR.org or call 1-800-909-9287. WBUR supporters include Boston Ballet's The Nutcracker. Beloved characters and stunning dancing will enchant audiences of all ages through December 31st. Tickets at BostonBallet.org. And Blue Cross Blue Shield of Massachusetts. Medicare plans for every lifestyle and budget. Visit BlueCrossMA.com slash go. Last week, a far-right party whose leader wants to ban mosques received the most votes in the Dutch national election. The party will likely not have enough support to form a government, but the strong result served as a reminder that far-right politics are gaining more popular support as Europe deals with an uptick in migration and a downturn in its economy. NPR's Rob Schmitz is with us now from Berlin to tell us more. Good morning, Rob. Morning, Michelle. So let's start in the Netherlands, where last week's election saw what we are told was a surprising win for the far-right Freedom Party, at least surprising to some. What does this result tell us? 
Well, you know, it tells us first that migration has again risen to become a very big concern for Dutch voters, at least. The Freedom Party is led by Geert Wilders, a populist politician whose views are so extreme that he requires police protection whenever he's out in public. He wants to ban all mosques, as you mentioned. He wants to ban the Koran. He wants to cut aid to Ukraine. His Freedom Party received just short of 25% of the vote last week, which does not sound like much, but when you consider that a couple of dozen parties were competing in this election, 25% is pretty good. And in fact, his party beat out every other mainstream party, showing that an anti-migration platform was quite popular. So Wilders said this weekend that he will become the Netherlands' next prime minister. Is that true? Well, he will get the first shot at trying to form a coalition government, but it's not likely he'll be able to convince enough parties to join him to make up the majority of seats in parliament required to do that. Over the weekend, another big vote-getter, the center-right party of outgoing Prime Minister Mark Rutte, said it would not join a coalition government with Wilders. And so far, only one major party has indicated that it's open to this, which means Wilders could form a minority government, but that would be incredibly unstable. Anytime he would offend a big party in parliament, he'd likely be voted out. So Wilders serving as a long-standing prime minister is not likely at all. But broaden this out a bit, and what does the strong result for him and his party say about the role of parties like that in Europe. Yeah, I mean, it is the latest sign that they're, th- these far-right parties are rebounding in popularity. Last month, I covered the elections in Poland, and while the far-right ruling Law and Justice Party did not win enough for an outright majority, it did get the most votes. But just like Wilders' party, it likely will not have the support to form a coalition government. But still, Poland is another case where a far-right anti-immigrant party received the most votes in another part of Europe. And you see these trends in France, Germany, Italy, and the list goes on. I spoke to Jacob Kierkegaard about this. He's a senior fellow at the German Marshall Fund in Brussels, and he made the observation that Gerd Wilders did not have much support back in September. His poll numbers started climbing in mid-October, and Kierkegaard thinks it's because of the Hamas attack on Israel and the pro-Palestinian protests that followed in Europe. For me, at least, it's difficult not to link that to the large-scale street protests by many immigrant groups in favor of Palestine in the Netherlands and elsewhere. So the protest, he's saying that the protest by a largely Muslim migrant community in the Netherlands prompted a backlash among voters? Right. Now, you know, there's always been a certain degree of unease among many Dutch voters about Muslim migrants. And Kierkegaard says when these voters saw Muslim migrants out in the streets at demonstrations, it revived some of their longstanding fears about this group. And it spurred some of them to vote for the most anti-Muslim candidate on the ballot. And that could have contributed to why Gerd Wilders is now leading coalition government talks in The Hague. That's NPR's Rob Schmitz joining us from Berlin. Rob, thank you. Thank you. This is WB Wars Morning Edition. I'm Rupa Shanoi. Our year-end fundraiser starts today. I'm here in the studio with our CEO, Margaret Lowe. Good morning. Good morning, Rupa. I always love being in the studio with you and the chance to talk directly to our listeners. Thank you so much for being here. Let's start with the story that's capturing the world's attention. You spent many decades at NPR and ultimately ran the news division, overseeing hundreds of journalists across the country and around the world. Can you talk about what it takes for NPR to cover a story like the conflict between Israel and Hamas? It takes a lot. Uh, The first job is to make sure you're covering the conflict as completely as possible with up-to-the-minute reporting, providing context, perspective, history, and human stories that really help us understand what people are experiencing. 
the war between Israel and Hamas is one of the most difficult stories we will ever cover. It's heated and complex and excruciating from just about every angle. We try to shed light on what's happening and to help people make some sense of what can seem utterly senseless and to do that with a level of sophistication and sensitivity and skill. And that's not an easy thing to do. No, it's not. And we hear from people every day who tell us we've missed the mark and others who write with appreciation for the quality of our coverage. We take all the feedback very seriously and it makes us better. It's also meaningful that people take the time to write. And I think that's because they ultimately trust us and hold us to the highest standards, and they should. Not only is the journalism paramount, so is the safety of our colleagues, right? Right. NPR has sent dozens of reporters to the region, and hostile environment training is a must for journalists going into a conflict zone, whether it's in the Middle East or Ukraine or anywhere things can get dicey. This training takes several days and covers everything from emergency first aid to situational awareness and how to stay as safe as possible, even in the most dangerous places. And on top of that training, reporters, producers, photographers, fixers, translators, and drivers, those are all the people required for this work. All those people need safety equipment. And in the case of frontline coverage near Israel's border with Gaza or Lebanon or inside Gaza and southern Lebanon, each person has to have a ballistic vest with neck and groin protection to protect the carotid and femoral arteries against shrapnel. They also need a ballistic helmet. They need protective eyewear and first aid kits. It's a lot of stuff, and it's expensive. The kind of protective gear needed for an active war zone can cost thousands of dollars a person. And then beyond physical safety, there's the emotional and psychological well-being of journalists. Yeah. I mean, that is another very crucial piece of the puzzle. NPR must provide constant resources for stress and for trauma support. And the truth is... Whether you're covering the story on the front lines or from thousands of miles away, this work can take an enormous toll, just as it does for our listeners who are trying to absorb it all. As you say, the conflict is happening thousands of miles away, and our journalists are also covering the war on Here and Now and On Point, our two national shows that air here and across the country. But it's resonating in Boston, too. How do you see WBWAR's role in capturing the local implications of the story? Yeah, this conflict is resonating in so many corners of the country and the world and definitely here in Boston. And we need to tell those stories, too, like the story of that Medway family that was trapped in Gaza for 27 days and finally got out through the Rafah border crossing into Egypt. We've covered demonstrations in support of Israel, demonstrations in support of Palestinians. We've covered the strains at Harvard as the university tries to address the deep tensions that have flared since October 7th. We visited a coffee shop in Cambridge where people come together for comfort and conversation. We've talked to a poet trying to find common ground. Lots of people here have deep ties to the region. So this all feels very real and very relevant and quite raw. As we come up to the end of the year, we know we're going to stay on this story. But thinking about our other work, what stands out to you from the past year? So much stands out. Every day we try to shine light on some of the most pressing issues of our time. One powerful example comes from our reporter, Gabriela Emanuel, who's been digging into the housing crisis in Massachusetts and the family shelter system, which has hit a breaking point. Her reporting over the last few months has revealed the tremendous strain one person 
one story at a time, like this woman named Nagumi who made her way to Massachusetts all the way from Peru. She escaped life-threatening circumstances there with her husband and three young children. She had no idea where to go until a cousin connected her with an acquaintance who happened to have a space to rent in her Chelsea apartment. Let's listen. When she saw the place, she says she felt short of breath. She was desperate. This person was offering half of a bedroom. The other half was rented to a father and son. The cost, $550 a month. Nagumi's family of five had no choice. They slept there on one mattress that had lost most of its stuffing. I remember that story. Things went from bad to worse for Nagumi and her family. Her voice and Gabriella's storytelling makes the issue so vivid. So vivid. Humans have told stories since the beginning of time, and the intimacy of the human voice is part of what defines NPR and WBUR. So many stories we cover reflect significant forces at play in our city, our country, and our world. A housing crisis, opioid addiction, climate change. We tell stories that capture the world as it is, and we know that's more than war or politics or the worst thing to happen on a given day. Yeah, our role is more than just the day's news. We really try to enrich people's lives. Right. I mean, the world we live in also includes music and books and food. So we present curated cuisine and city space where you can meet people defining the flavors of the city and even try their delicious food. We introduced people to the makers, 10 wildly talented artists of color who are on the rise and making waves in this city and beyond. We created the Field Guide to Boston, highlighting some of the most fascinating things about this place we call home, including a salute to Boston's arts and culture scene, local chefs' tips on the best places to eat, and a very timely section on everything you need to know about winter in Boston, which is fast approaching. Or for some of us, may feel like it's here. It does. It actually does feel like it's already here, especially for you, Rupa, because you have to get up in the middle of the night to get here. Exactly. So, you know, beyond that, WBUR now offers game nights, speed friending. I think that's a lovely twist on speed dating. Arts and crafts nights. There are so many ways to get involved, to expand your horizons and your connection to the community and to one another. We really want WBUR to be a centrifugal force in Boston and to make your life richer and more meaningful because we're here. We often say during our fundraisers that we're asking listeners for their support to help us cover the stories we know about and the ones we can't predict. So how much does monthly giving make a difference in our ability to be able to cover everything that comes our way at any time? It makes all the difference in the world. WBUR and NPR will always be free. We're a public service. And this is especially relevant today because we now live in a world where only people who can afford a subscription have access to many of the most credible, high-quality news sources. And in my mind, that further divides the haves and have-nots. And in contrast, WBUR is available to anyone, anywhere, anytime, at no cost. Sustaining members provide the support we need to make that possible and to ensure that we're here today and tomorrow and for generations to come to cover the most consequential issues of our time and to make Boston an even better place to live. Margaret Lowe is WBUR CEO. Thank you very much. Thank you, Rupa. 
We are funded by you, our listeners, and by Lauren Holleran with Gibson Sotheby's International Realty in Cambridge, real estate brokerage that is grounded in data and committed to thoughtful design. LaurenHolleran.com and Office of the Massachusetts State Treasurer. Check to see if you have unclaimed property at findmassmoney.gov. This is Morning Edition on WBUR. I'm Rupa Shanoi here with Tiziana Deering. It's Giving Tuesday, and we're kicking off our year-end fundraiser, asking you to be part of the community that makes this service possible every single day. And you know what you get from us. You just heard an amazing roundup of everything we are dedicated to bringing you every single morning from our CEO, Margaret Lowe. That only happens with your help. Listeners make up the largest share of our fund. And we need you to be one of them. So please give at WBUR.org or call 1-800-909-9287. Your contribution can go even farther and have even more of an impact right now with a match on the table that Tiziana is just bursting to tell you about. That's right. I can't make the case any more beautifully than Margaret Lowe just did. So let me just tell you, some members of our Murrow Society share the passion for WBUR that you do. Rely on the station the same way way that you do and are inviting you to join them today on this Giving Tuesday to show how important WBUR is to you, to the community, by giving and getting a 50% match on your gift. Anything you give will go 50% further in providing the news and information Margaret just laid out to you. Today is the day to do it. That's what Giving Tuesday is about, is using some amount of your money to show what you value. Join those Murrow Society members, accept their invitation, be in community with them, and give today to support WBUR. Please get that 50% match. 1-800-909-9287 or WBUR.org. We need you to think about everything you depend on WBUR to bring you every morning. Governor Healy's administration policies, Mayor Wu's policies and priorities, the housing crisis, the situation at Mass and Cass, nationally, the unpredictable road to the White House in 2024, because, oh yeah, there's an election coming up and you will be tuning in to WBUR to keep you informed. You need to support that service. Give at WBUR.org or call 1-800-909-9287. And thank you so much. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by The Provider Group, an insurance brokerage and benefits firm serving high net worth individuals and businesses, working with carriers like Safety Insurance, ProviderIG.com. And Cityside Subaru on Route 60 in Belmont, celebrating this season of giving with Subaru's Share the Love event, now through January 2nd. I'm WBUR arts and culture reporter Cristela Guerra, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUH-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station.